Well, this morning, I wanted to invite you into a little bit of what we've been studying on Wednesday nights with students. Wednesday nights and students, we've been going through parables. We've been walking through the stories that Jesus tells and he, he uses so, so well. And I think this really fits into our sense strategy as Pastor Kenneth has been walking us through the book of Acts. This is a specific parable that we're going to look at this morning, this story of Jesus. It is a story of love. Love is a word, though, that can be so vast in its meaning. It has a great scope, right? It can be so easily cheapened. The word love can be the word of the seducer. It can be the word of the huckster. But it can also be the love of a sacrificial parent. It can also be the love of between, the word between a husband and a wife. And so we're going to see this story of love because love can carry many different ways, right? I love tacos is different than the sentence, I love my son, right? I love playing golf with my buddies and I love my wife has a different meaning. Maybe it's, I love it when my wife lets me go play golf with my friends. But, but those, they carry different weights, the word love. And there's no doubt that love is a central theme in Jesus's message Throughout his life, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus calling us to love God and to love others. However, Christ's call for love cannot be reduced to a simple slogan or a sentimental slogan. His model, he modeled love in his life, and he describes love in one of the most powerful stories ever told. And if you walk away this morning think of, thinking, I just need to help out the needy more, you have missed the point. You have missed it. And so this is the parable that I'm sure you're familiar with. Maybe as a young kid, this was a parable that was taught to you by felt people cut out of felt and placed on a felt board. Maybe this is a story that was sung to you by vegetables on a TV screen. But however, this parable is not a kid's story, but a Christian story. It is not a kid's story, but a Christian story. It is the parable we know as the Good Samaritan. And so a story whose setting is often neglected yet crucial to understanding the Lord's message. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse Luke chapter 10, verse 25, says this. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This is the setting. This is, let's pause here for a moment. This is the setting. This is the picture. You have this, this guy, right? And this is point number one. We see the priority of love. If you're a note taker, it's, it's in the app. But the priority of, priority of love is point number one. The Lord's interrogator is an expert in the law. But this is, when you use the word lawyer here, it's not in Roman civil law. This guy is an expert. His expertise is in Jewish religious law. So think of him more as a theologian than an attorney. 
Okay, so he is a theologian, not an attorney. His motivation for this conversation is very transparent as well, and that is to test Jesus. He's testing him. And even with impure motives, look at the question that he asks. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What question could be more important? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what this is, this is crazy is, is, do you see the big assumption in the question that he asks? What shall I do? This man believes that eternal life is attainable. That it's something that, like salvation, can come by human works. And if you're asking the same question this morning, the answer is nothing. The answer is you can do nothing. It has already been done through Christ's work on the cross. Repent and believe. You can't do anything to inherit a gift. Does that make sense? Inheritance is a weird thing. I don't, know, I don't know how often you think about inheritance. Maybe you're like, hey, I got this giant inheritance coming to me. Maybe you think, like, listen, I have no idea what that is. Okay, maybe it's something you bank on. Maybe it's something you rely on. But I have two brothers, an older one and a younger one, and whatever my parents have left will immediately go to the three of us, split three ways, boom, individually, evenly, at least so I think, okay? <laughs> and so... My older brother, though, doesn't get more for being older. My, like, there's, no, there's no competition between me and my brothers for whoever's the favorite, right? It's inheritance is such a weird thing. It's not about who's the favorite or who's accomplished more in their life. Why? Because inheritance is based on relationship, not achievement. I'm going to say it again. Inheritance is based on a relationship, not achievement, Maybe you would look at this negatively. Maybe you would say the achiever and you would say, listen, that's not fair though. What if I have a sibling who's terrible? What if I have a sibling who's left the family, right? Maybe there was a job that you interviewed for and you knew you were qualified and then the boss goes and hires his cousin just because they're his cousin. And you're like, well, I was qualified for that. Maybe your kid on, your, on his little league team is the best player on the team, yet the dad who's the coach plays his son over yours. Right, maybe something into you says, listen, that's not fair. But let me, let me tell you this this morning. When it comes to eternal life, none of us deserve it. There's not a person in this room that would say, listen, but I deserve eternal life, right? I've earned it. None of us can say that. You may even think you're entitled to your inheritance, but at the same time, my parents don't owe me and my brothers anything, right? Inheritance is based on relationship, not achievement, Next, we see Jesus in typical Jesus fashion flip a question on someone who asked it, right? He knows the theologian's heart. He knows that he wants to answer it himself, and he gets the, this man to answer it himself. Being the theologian that he is, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and then he combines it with another verse, Leviticus nineteen eighteen: love your neighbor as yourself. This response is a good one. To love God and to love people is a great answer. It combines all of the Ten Commandments, really. The first four Ten Commandments tell us how to love God. Number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Number two, you should not have any idols. Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then the last six tell us how to love others, right? Five, honor your father and mother. Six, do not murder. Seven, do not commit adultery. Eight, do not steal. Nine, do not bear false witness. And 10, do not covet. 
He's combining all the Ten Commandments into a couple sentences to love God and to love others. This is a brilliant answer. In fact, Jesus gave this exact answer in Matthew 22, linking these exact same verses. The Lord readily accepts the man's answer. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But something in the Lord's response troubles the theologian. When he says, yeah, you're right, go ahead, do that, and you'll live. Something doesn't feel quite right in a theologian who's seeking for a list of rules, seeking for where's the bar, where can I meet, where do I meet Jesus? He's asked, he wants a different answer, even from the one that he gave himself. Because this is an impossible task. To love God and to love other people. The theologian knows deep down, I haven't done this in my past, nor can I keep this up in my future. I mean, I've tried. I've tried really hard, but when Jesus says, do this, yeah, do that. Love God, love people. And he's like, ooh. But I haven't. Eternal life is not earned by works, it was received by a relationship with God. And this is so key when we look at the story we're about to look at. Your loving relationship with God is in direct correlation with your love with others. Your loving relationship with God is in direct correlation with your love of others. This man knows he has a problem. I try my best, but I know I fall short. And in a panic, he goes full Mr. Rogers and says, hey, who's my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? Who, I don't know. Because this is the question behind, this is the motive behind here. Who is my neighbor? If, if there is a neighbor that I must love, then surely there must be a non-neighbor that I don't have to love. Where do I draw the line, Jesus? What are the limits to my love? How far does my responsibility go? Who isn't my neighbor? Who don't I have to love? These are questions you may still ask the Lord today. Has there ever been a time when you've experienced compassion fatigue? <laughs> you know, the, uh, I was thinking about the worship song, you know, where, um, I'm not getting, well, I'll try to sing for you. You know, it's like, your love never fails and never gives up. Never runs out on me, right? If that song were sung about me, it'd be like, my love's definitely failing. It's running on out. It's running out on you, right? Like, there's moments when it's like, I'm, 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 I'm done. I'm, I'm done with loving. Maybe you feel the same way, right? My love has limits. My love is different. And so let's look at how Jesus responds, though, in this familiar and famous story. Look, let's keep going. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. 
Point number one was the priority love, and then in the story we see point number two, and that is the portrait of love. The portrait of love. The story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus, through this story, is showing us the portrait of love. This is a fictional story. This is a parable, okay? And so it's not something that we dive down in the weeds and we give hidden meanings to everything, but this is a story that is taking place in an actual real place, okay? So when he says a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, this is real. This is the part in the sermon where if I were Pastor Kenneth, I would say this is a picture of when I was in Israel, okay? But I haven't been to Israel, okay? So, so, here's a picture of when Kenneth was in Israel, okay? And so, so Pastor Kenneth gave me these, okay? And so, this is, this is helpful. This is helpful. This is a picture. So, when it says that he went down to Jericho, this is a road that stretches 17 miles, okay? And this is a road that goes down. You go down in a crevice. It actually goes down to Jericho 3,300 feet, okay? So, it is in 17 miles, it goes down over 3,000 feet. And so, these are pictures that we're going to look at. There's, here's another one that's going to come up. And so, it gives you a picture of where people would traverse and people would walk around, okay? And so he's giving a clear picture. There are coves and cutouts and caves and hideaways that robbers would easily hide in. And so traveling by yourself in this time period would be very dangerous and it's actually still dangerous today. So to be able to walk through, thank you, Pastor Kenneth, for going to Israel and next time we should all go with him. Okay, but this is a real place. It's called the Way of Blood, is the nickname for this road. And it is a very possible real life scenario, similar to if I were to tell you a story and I said, okay, well, there's this guy and he was stuck in traffic on 280. You'd be like, ah, makes sense. If I said there was this woman and she was wearing white pants and shopping at the summit, you'd say, makes sense, right? I see it all the time, okay? And so this is the same thing. When people are here, when Jesus says there was a mugging that happened on the road to Jericho, they'd be like, makes sense. I completely understand. It makes sense. And so this would not be surprising, but what is surprising is the three encounters we see. The first two men are religious figures. We have a priest and we have a Levite, both of whom would have served at the temple. The priest goes, sees a fellow Jew, stripped, beaten, laying in a pool of his own blood, barely breathing, assesses the situation, calculates in his head, and says, nope, and walks on by on the other side. The Levite sees his fellow Jew, stripped, beaten, laying in a pool of his own blood, barely breathing, and says, nope. Walks by on the other side. Now, I don't know why they did this. The Lord doesn't give us the reasons or the motivations in doing this, but we can all understand the fear of contamination and complications of contact with people in need. Involvement with problem people often entangles us in embarrassing, difficult, and even dangerous situations. This is where the Lord just convicted me and dropped this in my mailbox so hard, okay? We may not feel good about going to the other side, but we do feel a lot safer. I'm a priest. I'm not a paramedic. Let someone else deal with that that's better qualified. Convicted me so hard. It is important, though, that we should not make the mistake of thinking these are bad guys. 
These are not bad people. These are not busy. These are not bad men. These are busy men. These are men that have better things to do. These are men who you would expect to stop, but they did not. You would expect them, but they didn't. And for them, too often for me, people in need are problems, interruptions, annoyances. They intrude awkwardly on my privacy. They deflect me from what I was doing. They keep me from what I like. I agree they need help, and I hope someone does help them, but not me. Not now. Not here. At this point in the audience, the, like the story, the audience is probably on the edge of their seat, right? Predicting the plot twist. Oh, Jesus just said that the priest and Levi went by. Who's going who's gonna to be the hero? Who's going to be the savior? Is it going to be a layman like me, just an ordinary guy? Come on. That's who I want to see. That's who I'm ready. And then Jesus says these words. He says, and a Samaritan. No. Not a Samaritan. A Samaritan, no. These are the half-breeds. These are the mudbloods. These are the people we hate. We can't stand Samaritans, okay? We can't stand them. No way. And so Jews hated with a passion Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews in the same way. Jesus is intentionally, deliberately, and carefully Shocking his audience. But it isn't the man's nationality that sets him apart. There are three things that set this man apart, and the first one we see is compassion. First one we see is compassion. He doesn't see anything different that the other two guys didn't see. Yet the Samaritan feels something that the other two men did not feel. He has compassion. He, he lets what he sees to affect his emotions and his actions. The hostility between Jews and Samaritans was put aside because of the compassion he had. Number one, we see compassion, and that compassion is expressed in number two, and that is care. Care. This man wouldn't have been carrying a first aid kit. The bandages that he made would have been torn from his own clothes. He would have sacrificed the oil and wine to pour on this man's wounds to heal them. He loads him up on his animal takes him down to an inn, and continues to care for him. This is personal contact and care, not remote charity. He didn't just drop some money and leave it. He has personal contact and care. Number one, compassion. Number two, care. And then thirdly, we see his commitment. We see his commitment. He takes responsibility for the man. Paying for any future needs, He has no reason to believe that he would ever receive this back. No reason to believe that he would ever be reimbursed. He is freely expressing undeserved and unexpected love to a person in need. And that is the portrait of love. That is point number two, the portrait of love. Leading us to point number three, and that is the practice of love. The practice of love. Finally, we see the practice. This is the great challenge. Look at this, verse 36. After telling this story, this is what Jesus says. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, look at this, he can't even say Samaritan. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
Jesus answers the question of who is my neighbor in his response in verse 36. Which of these do you think proved, proved to be the neighbor to the man? Proved, even more literally translated, is became. Became a neighbor. Proved. He proved to be a neighbor. My neighbor is the person who is in need, whose need I can see, whose need I can meet. My neighbor may be, in fact, my bitter enemy. But more so than defining who our neighbor is, Westwood, may we be called to care for them. May we at Westwood be known, not as a people who are trying to define who's our neighbor. Is that my neighbor? I don't know. Is that my neighbor? May we at Westwood be people who are convicted so much that we cannot walk by on the other side. We can't because of our compassion, our care, commitment, just like the Samaritan. This is the question that hit me like a ton of bricks. <laughs> Am I more concerned about the limits of my love, or am I more concerned about helping those in need? It's a question that rocked me. Am I more concerned about calculating the limits of my love, or am I more concerned about caring for hurting people? Like the great theologian Hathaway once said, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. What is love? I can't ask that question without thinking it in that way. Love is not a sentimental feeling, but a sacrificial action. It means interrupting my schedule. It means expending my money. It means ruining my property, even for a stranger, so that I can do what's best for him. Love is compassion that feels, it's care that involves, and commitment that endures. Love originates in the giver of love, not the object of love. Love initiates, takes the first step in reaching out to those in need. Love pays the ultimate price, going to extraordinary lengths to help the hurting. Do you see where we're going? Our love for others isn't a works-based theology, a do-good. It comes out of overflowing evidence of the love we've experienced through God in our lives. It comes out of an overflow, is the evidence that we have experienced the love of God in our lives. 1 John 3, 17 says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? The truth is, Westwood, that you and I are in desperate need. Just like the man left for dead, the Bible says that our sin, we are dead in it. Our sin separates us from God. It is a situation that we cannot fix on our own. Jesus, however, is the ultimate Samaritan, acting in costly love for his enemies, for you and for me. He did all that the Samaritan did and much more through his death on the cross for you and me, making a way when there was no way. All our debt paid in full. 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In closing, this is what I want us to think about this morning. The model of the good Samaritan is overwhelmed by the model of the good shepherd. The model of the good Samaritan is overwhelmed by the model of the good shepherd. And his model must be the mandate for our lives.